to another session of All Stars of Turf, presented by Foley and Air2G2. I'm Peter McCormick. Today we're recognizing Michael Morris, CGCS Director of Buildings and Grounds for the past 36 years at Crystal Downs Country Club in Frankfurt, Michigan. During that time, he has excelled as a practitioner of the craft, but also as a leader, taking the industry down paths it hadn't necessarily been down before. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Peter, for having me. It's my pleasure. So I noticed that, again, doing my research on LinkedIn, uh, you so you've been at Crystal Downs for 36 years, but prior to that, you had gotten a a bachelor's and master's degree in English and then yeah. and then went back for a certificate in turf correct that's correct yes so how how that all come about well you know it's a long story because it spanned many years you know a lot of people go to school for a long time to become doctors and lawyers and i i i went an awful long time to become a superintendent but uh i uh I grew up working on golf courses. And when I was 13 years old, I, I worked at a golf course uh, here in Frankfurt, a little nine hole golf course. And literally every summer from then until my adult years, I, I had worked on golf courses when I wasn't in school. Uh, even when I went to Michigan State University, I worked at Forest Acres Golf Course there for uh, Ron Foote and Sean O'Connor. And uh, I was kind of bullheaded. Uh, Sean O'Connor and my my other mentor Tuck Tate always wanted me to be a superintendent, but I uh, I guess I fit the mold of a superintendent pretty well in saying that I was bullheaded, and uh, I uh, I wanted to go my own direction and become a writer and become a professor and teach literature and writing at the university, and I really did enjoy that. But uh, at, a, at a certain point, I, I hit the wall with academics. I just couldn't imagine being the guy who wrote yet another book about Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> it was just too much for me to handle. <laughs> and there was a there was an interest in film there also, wasn't there? That's that's correct. Yeah, I was a graduate assistant in the literature and film series, and uh, my mentor and. Um, and a doctoral professor that I was working with at that time, we were great friends, and uh, that was that was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I I was I was deep in the the literature, the writing, and everything uh, liberal arts at Michigan State. But again, I'd worked every summer uh, on golf courses and loved it. And. Uh, when I did hit the wall with academics, that's when I made the switch. I actually finished up my master's degree while I was in the certificate program. And, oh, is that uh, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and uh, you know, and it's uh, uh, it's been a good ride ever since. Yes, it has. That's there's no doubt about that. So, you've um. You've done quite a few videos and webinars and podcasts with us, either with me or John Reitman or um, Frank Rossi mm -hmm. uh, over the years. Um, one of the earliest of which was, uh, I 
met you and Tom Nikolai at uh, uh, in East Lansing and did a thing about greens rolling, which was very new at the time. It was early 2000 years, I'm guessing 2001, 2002, I think. And that became a big thing, uh, certainly for you and Tom. I mean, you gave presentations through GCSA for eight or nine or 10 years after that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it was more than more than 10 years. And uh, yeah, you were one of the early uh, people or people who covered the uh, this work early in the in the process. I, I still have the TurfNet printed article from Mr. Stimp. We we, uh, we try to be <laughs> out front. <laughs> well, you were you were, and uh, uh, yeah, for uh, for over a decade, Tom and I taught. Uh, we're GCSAA. Uh, you know, I I traveled to Canada and. Sweden to teach the class to the Swedish Greenkeeper Association. Tom has been all over the world, uh, really, literally uh, teaching uh, the information that we put together. And uh, it was fun. It was a very fun thing. And uh, we, we like to think that it, it moved the needle a little bit when it comes to putting green management uh, here in the country. And this uh, next generation can take it wherever they want to take it. <laughs> so the crux of that, though, was using rolling as either um, an addition or substitute for uh, mowing. Right. And then that also led you into a um, an interest in... Uh, real mower maintenance and adjustment um, as a as a component of or how it afflict, affects playability. I know you, um, you and Stephen Bernhardt did a week-long quality of cut webinar series for us back in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, what came out of that in terms of, um, or, you know, what were your rough conclusions as to... Uh, you know, the practices of the day as they related to, you know, equipment or greens mower adjustment and that kind of thing right. um, as it affected uh, play or quality of cut and playability. Yeah. Well, well, you, you mentioned a couple of things, you know, first of all, rolling. Um, rolling was um, something that golf course superintendents uh, were familiar with, but were afraid of because they didn't want to wear out the grass or uh, increase compaction. And there was quite a bit of literature out there that warned against rolling or rolling too much. And uh, Dr. Nikolai took that aspect and did a tremendous amount of research with that. And you'll have to talk to him about it, but you know, he, he challenged those assumptions and, and proved most of them wrong that rolling could be integrated in uh, in putting green management uh, very effectively to reduce mowing mowing to enable us to raise mowing heights and any number of things that reduce disease reduce um, localized dry spot but that's that's his uh, uh, that was was this roughly concurrent with the introduction of the side sidewinder type of uh, lightweight rollers? 
Yes, yeah, it was right after that. So, you know, some of the uh, early rollers were quite heavy, and then it moved into the the lightweight rolling that we see now. And 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 Tom worked with a lot of those manufacturers and did a lot of research at Michigan State uh, on rolling. Um, the work that Stephen and I did on grinding um, uh, came out of the fact that when when we first started using the stimp meter, not just as uh, comparing our green speed to the golf course down the street, but to use it as a, as a measurement of uh, a quality of our greens and the practices we were using, whether it was rolling or whatever. But we found that more setup and more sharpness had a direct impact on consistency. And it was, it was um, undeniable. It was noticeable. And we really got excited about mower setup. Now, prior to that, we'd been lapping mowers and using other um, techniques and, and maybe not using uh, mower sharpening the way it ought to be used. You know, uh, particularly in northern climates, all the sharpening took place in the winter when you weren't busy out mowing. <laughs> sure. But what, we, what we discovered was if you keep that mower sharp, through the season you don't have to repair it at the end of the year it's sharp all the time and and that translated directly into uh, higher quality putting surfaces and so um, that's where Stephen uh, latched on to me and drug me all around the place uh, to do a number of seminars with you and, and with other associations around the U.S. but uh, you know I think the, the the key is that the stip meter became the um, the measuring tool, the thermometer, if you will, of the research that Tom was doing and the other things that I was doing in terms of customer satisfaction on the golf course. Well, certainly when I got into the business back in the mid 80s, the, the um, cutting unit sharpening consisted of almost across the board, an annual sharpening on a grinder and then backlapping in between. Yeah. And then the spin grinders kind of came on the scene and because they could be done or they could be touched up much quicker than, um, you know, single blade grinding. Yeah. Um, certainly what Stephen pro pro professed or promoted was periodic you know during the season throw them on touch them up and uh continue along those lines yeah yeah it was uh you know it, we showed that it uh, made a difference in putting green quality measured it um at about the same time this kind of new technology for sharpening came along. I mean, it, it was totally impractical to hook grind or single blade grind the yeah. reel in the summer. I mean, it just take, it took too much time. So as these, um, you know, Peerless had a, had a table grinder and, you know, uh, these sharpening companies were, were uh, really moving the ball forward as well. And uh, Stephen and now, of course, Foley have, have systems in place that allow mechanics to just, you know, keep that mower just tuned up to a T. And actually, you know, it sounds like it might be more work, but it actually saves time in the process. You have higher quality, 
saves time and uh, and uh, better results. Yeah. So assuming that that conversation started 20 years ago, uh, fast forward 20 years to mm-hmm. today, and had, that's pretty much been mainstreamed, hasn't it? A lot of what you were sort of pioneering back then, had, so far as rolling and and cutting unit maintenance and that kind of thing, has been mainstreamed, has it not? Yes, it has. Yeah, it was never my goal to to earn the title, Mister Stimp, that you had given me <laughs> to wear that as a badge. <laughs> but I I saw an article recently uh, about the USGA coming out with a. Um, a ball that has some technology yeah. that the ball actually measures, you know, ball roll and, and right. trueness of the surface and so on. And there was an interview with the superintendent who is going to be using that. And I was really excited to hear him say, this is going to allow me to quantify the, uh, the results of our maintenance practices. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the old. How about that? <laughs> you know, it wasn't it wasn't 30 years ago where I'm gonna show the guy down the street <laughs> how fast they can be, or I'm gonna blow the socks off the club champion or whatever. No, it was like this is going to allow me to, you know, determine the things that affect trueness and bounce and uh and ball roll. So I I was really excited to hear that. And I to your point, yeah, it yes, it has become mainstream and uh and I'm happy for it. There was a lot of resistance originally. Sure. Uh, but uh, but now I think people see it for what it is. So Frank Rossi uh, described you as a uh, not necessarily pioneer, maybe, but a a, prom- <laughs> a promoter of data driven management. Right. Uh, looking back, that points out the dichotomy I think between your liberal arts stuff being a word guy to all of a sudden you know you're you've become a numbers guy yeah you know i i think it had to happen (laughs) because uh you know i couldn't talk my way out of some of these situations i found myself in on the golf course you know i needed a lot of it was club relations with golfer relations right what's our you know what what's a good speed for the club and you know yeah we as superintendents were trying to talk our way around that for years and you can see it in the literature and no one took the stimp meter out of the closet to, to, you know, start collecting the data. Uh, so, so yeah, it was a little shift for me. And fortunately, you know, I have, a, I had a, a good partner in Tom who understands scientific method and uh, my, uh, my inquisitiveness and his, uh, approach to research uh, were a good combination, I think. Nice. I'm going to ask you for a couple of nuggets. Nuggets of wisdom. Assuming that you have a few. <laughs> um, what's something you had to learn the hard way? Or something that you weren't taught in turf school or liberal arts curriculum for that matter? Yeah, um, you know, we're going to talk about this more in a minute. But one of the one of the big things that is lacking, I think, in turf school is uh, management science, which is really more of a social science 
or a liberal arts science than it is. But it, it's also a hard science as well. You know, it's very data driven. Um, and I think the thing that I learned, I was, I was actually a graduate student, is the difference between uh, internal conversations and external conversations. And, uh, you know, when, when you go up the ranks and you become a leader and you become part of a management team or involved in the board, um, you need to know how to manage that information. And you don't just uh, run out of the boardroom and tell your friends or stir the pot because of some maybe agenda that you have, uh, because it'll come back to bite you because there are people that have more power and influence than you. <laughs> this, I will never forget it. It happened to me uh, when I was a graduate student. I was in a, a committee meeting and some professor had what I thought was a harebrained idea in our closed meeting. And I hit the streets with that information and I got my wrist slapped pretty hard. Uh, <laughs> so how we manage information in in don't use it for personal agendas or for manipulative purposes. Be very objective. Um, I don't know if that that's what you're looking for, but boy, I'll never no, forget. that's good. Yeah. When you first said internal versus external conversations, I envisioned <clears throat> Mike Morris walking around a golf course or riding around talking to himself, but I guess that's not what you <laughs> meant by in, internal <laughs> Private information, private information versus public information, and right. you know these processes that we we need to go through when we're working as teams and, and organizations. Um, so you know, loose lips sink ships. They say keep some of that stuff close to the vest. Which segues right into my next one, which was asking for a nugget on people management or leadership. Yeah particularly for, you know, for young superintendents or guys coming right up, coming up the ranks. Yeah. Well, um, it's interesting you should ask that. Uh, I am uh, <clears throat> currently teaching a course for Greenkeeper University, and uh, I, I don't know what the politics in the industry is about Greenkeeper University versus all the other entities, but it, it's a good group. They've got some good technology, and they, they offer classes to people, and uh, they were all the classes they offered were agronomic. And I thought, oh, you know, I don't know much about agronomics, but I do know something about communication and management. Yeah. And I offered to Bill Kreiser the, uh, a six-week class in this. And that gave me an opportunity to do some research, prepare curriculum, and teach. And I've done it for a couple of years. One of the things that you'll find at the bookstore, the airport, or whatever, is <laughs> a jillion books on leadership. And if there were so many books on leadership, the big qu the question is, why aren't there more great leaders? Either they don't read the books, or the books that are out there don't don't uh, uh, produce great leaders. Um, so what I've found in in the research I've done is that leadership needs to be follower focused. Um, leaders, great leaders focus on their followers. They don't have to promote themselves, nor are they really desirous to promote themselves. 
their sole focus is on the well-being and the productivity and the performance of the people in the organization because without them we can't do anything uh that sounds simple but it, it requires skills um, of communication and empathy that aren't taught in in schools I, I don't know if they could be taught but i don't think people even realize that that's what it's about so you know, it's important for us to know what our people are thinking, what they're feeling, what their attitude is toward the job. Uh, there's a great book called The Three Laws of Performance by uh, Zafrin and Logan. And it says every employee has a default future. And we need to understand what that default future is. And we can change that with language, with communication into the future, the vision we want for our organization. So that's a long-winded way, which I tend to be a long-winded way of saying we need to focus on the people and, um, and to um, manage to their strengths and encourage them to continue to grow and everything that goes along with nurturing uh, a group of people. So leadership is not really about the leader. It's about the followers, I guess would be a way I'd sum that up. There you go. Uh, it's interesting. The uh, the times that I'm invited to speak at conferences or whatever, I I obviously leave the ends, P's, K's and all that stuff to the, the turf academics. And I, <laughs> one of my first things I say is, you know, this this presentation is not going to be like anything else you're going to hear today or, you know, arguably at other times. And I'll talk about getting fired or being depressed or mental health or, you know, any of that type of thing that that are things that, uh, you know, hopefully we've been able to shine a little bit of light on over the years. Yeah, I, I think you have done an excellent job at that. Uh Peter and and I think it's I think it's critical and I think it's it's going to be the next big step for uh, our profession to kind of get their head around that. Um, not just because of the way society is is going, but every golf course superintendent you talk to said, you know, I, I studied the grass, I studied the fertilizers, I studied the soil, I studied the bugs. I get out here. 90% of my time dealing with people, you know, yeah, and, you know, we haven't, we haven't uh, addressed that in our, uh, in our educational curricula. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's room for more of that in, in our uh, course offerings or uh, continuing education programs. We'll see. Yeah. About uh, along similar lines, um, you know, they say the uh, the old adage that being a golf course superintendent's ten percent agronomy and ninety percent politics, or something like that. <laughs> but a nugget or two with uh, on relations with club officials and or members. Yeah. Well, you know, I've only been at Crystal Downs. So I can only talk about my experience there. And um, 
for me and as a learner, uh, it's been tremendous because I've been able to work with boards and committees comprised of some great leaders and uh, very successful people in their businesses and in their life in general. Develop some very strong uh, friendships with uh, a number of them. And it, it, it's been great. Um, I did have a guy who is really one of my favorites who got upset with me one time and came storming in my office and slammed the door and left his dog out in the hallway. So I knew that was going to be a, a serious conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we were able to work through it. But, uh, you know, I think that the key is to be able to work with a diverse group of people. Uh, a recent uh, president of the club who's uh, now gone off the board and is just enjoying uh, golf all the time uh, said, you know, Mike, you're, your key to success has been your ability to deal with very different personalities, very different temperaments, and very different people throughout the years. You know, and I, and uh, I didn't have much of a choice in that matter, but uh, I'm glad I was able to do it. So, how about um, the biggest innovation in turf management during your time as a superintendent? You've certainly pushed the the envelope on some of them, I think, but, uh, you know, narrow it down to, to one. Yeah. Um, boy. Doesn't necessarily need to be a product could be a process also. Yeah. Right. Or a product. You know, I, I think back of when, Oh, I, I was talking to a sports writer the other day and talking about crystal downs and how long I've been there and, the joke that no one else would take me. But, uh, you know, I, I told him I, the, the standards of course maintenance back in the 1980s, 1990s would be totally unacceptable today to our golfing public. Totally unacceptable. And so, you know, so many things have changed and it's, and it's hard to see where it's going. But, um, you know, I think some of the chemistry, uh, the safe chemistry that's come out, I think is extremely important. The low dose, low impact uh, chemistry. Um, and, you know, and I, I think, I, I think that's it. You know, I, I really do. You know, the, the mower has improved in technology, but it's the same thing that we've always done. It's still a side. You know, <laughs> sure. but, you know, some of the technology that's being used uh, in terms of fertilizers and, and pest control uh, are, are really great. And they're great for the environment. And I, I, I appreciate that, you know, and then. So I'm going to say biology. Right? This is my final answer. <laughs> biology, well, which would incorporate. <laughs> uh, turf cultivars also turf that's, that's where i was going that's where i was going you know yeah. um you know it not everything has been a home run but it's going in the right direction you know and i think turf cultivars uh you know are going to saw recently that um i guess this is the 30th anniversary of the introduction of primo yeah yeah there you go which has to be a big one yeah yeah it is 
So, uh, yeah, it's hard to pin me down, Peter. So I'm going to go. (laughs) Chemistry and biology. (laughs) There you go. Painting with a broad brush. (laughs) So you have, um, and the reason we're talking today is that I got, did I get an email or did I see something on social media or something or another? And I saw something about Michael Morris Consulting. And I thought, hmm, did I not realize that he's no longer at Crystal Downs, which is, I guess, a common assumption. Um, So I reached out to you to find out, A, are you or are you not still at Crystal Downs, which you are? And uh, B, what's the story with the soft launch of your consulting business. So uh, fill us in on that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, it all, it all ties together really. Um, I've had a, a great relationship with the club for, for many, many years. And I knew that at some point I'm going to, I'm going to leave the operation and go off and do something on my own, hopefully, or, or retire and hang out on the river and, catch steelhead or do whatever, but I'm going to do something else. And I, in a very unusual move, I told the club way in advance, almost five years. I said, let's, let's start. Let's not kid ourselves. This is all going to come to an end sometime. Sure. We put in place uh, a transition program where um, I would, I would turn over the golf course to my, uh, then assistant Don Roth, who is now fully in charge of the golf course. But as you know, Peter, superintendents from my era were doing everything. You know, we're not just sharpening mowers, we're changing light bulbs and plunging toilets, <laughs> fixing windows and doors. And, sure. you know, it, our, our jobs sometimes evolved because we could do it and because we never said no to anything, we would end up taking care of a lot of the operation and many of us moved on to be directors or general managers or whatever as a result of that. But, uh, you know, structurally for the club management, it, it's, we have this absolute wonderful golf course that needs focused attention and the superintendent shouldn't be worried about are the tennis nets sagging, uh, you know, and, and so my suggestion those things that just irritate the hell out of people, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and mostly the guy who's been asked to go out and fix them on a moment's notice. But uh, this allows the superintendent to just really focus on the golf course and the golf course staff. And to we have over you know 300 acres of non-golf course property and buildings and so on. And so to have a person uh, take care of that part of the golf course now. Uh, so what I'm doing in this transition period at the club is setting up a, a management program for all this stuff, all this non-golf course stuff. And at the conclusion, I'll hire a, a manager for the, uh, for the property. And there'll be a golf course manager and a property manager and life will go on and Unicorns will continue to fly and the gnomes come out every morning at Crystal Downs and life will be great. So that was that's the transition I put in place for the club. 
And uh, for myself, um, you know, I, I wanted to do an, an act two, and I have a couple more years to work with the club during this transition. But uh, I, I would like to do some consulting, but as you mentioned, not the NPK stuff so much as the management stuff. And I'm I'm in the process of putting that together right now. Good. You know, I, I, I wanna I wanna focus on things like structure and management, use things like focus groups and um, some of my teaching skills uh, to help, you know, whether it's an individual that's in that was in my position that wants to transition to another field or retire or move up or an assistant who wants to move up the ladder help them with the skills uh, to do that. And, uh, you know, I don't know if anybody really wants that information. So it's kind of a crazy business plan. I'm, yeah, I'm going to try to sell something that no one wants, <laughs> even though they might need it. Well, they don't want it. <laughs> some of what you're saying is resonating with me thinking back to 30 years ago also that, you come up with a harebrained idea that maybe it's not so harebrained. It's just a matter of uh, don't don't become too beholden to your business plan, and uh, you know always keep uh, modifying and adjusting. Well, if I'm half as successful and influential as you have been in our industry, oh my goodness, I will have succeeded. <laughs> so, uh, Crystal Downs is or Frankfurt is almost across the lake from green bay ish okay. yep. right so you're you're up there yep. uh, tell us a little bit about the club itself yeah you know the club was uh has been around for a long time it was established in 1927 um by uh you know a group of local people who wanted to develop it and and this was has been a resort area for Chicago and St. Louis for, for a long, long time, people escaping the heat and coming up like Michigan and so on. Um, and, you know, it's a private club. It's 18 holes. Uh, when it was established in 27, they had a little nine-hole course, you know, kind of carved out on the property, and they knew they hadn't quite got it right. And couple of the developers snagged uh, Alistair McKenzie uh, down in Chicago and brought him up to the property and he fell in love with it immediately and, and fairly quickly routed the, the golf course we have today. And Perry Maxwell, who was an associate of his at the time, came up to the area for two or three years and uh, built the course that we have now. And, um, he put a lot of the uh, character into the course. You know, Mackenzie gets the, the, the top billing, but there's a funny story. I played uh, golf at the Downs with uh, Bob Rehnquist once, and Bob worked at a Perry Maxwell course, Southern Hills, for many, many years. And every hole, it was like, that's a Maxwell. That's a Maxwell bunker. That's a Maxwell green. That's a Maxwell <laughs> <laughs> he was convinced. What did Mackenzie have to do with it? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and it, it's interesting. Uh, another story is uh, in in the 90s, we 
did a huge bunker renovation based on historic photographs, aerial photographs, home movies, and things like that. Real fun project. And I, and I went out to Pasa Tiempo, and I went uh, to Cypress Point, and I looked at these Mackenzie bunkers, and I, I just about had a heart attack. I said, oh, my God, I screwed everything up. <laughs> Because the bunkering, not the location so much, but the shape and style are more Maxwell. They, they look a lot like the golf courses at Prairie Dunes and Southern Hills. We had, we had photographic evidence to substantiate our work, and it was successful. But uh, I, I share that just to say it. we had these two tremendous uh, architects of the day working on this beautiful piece of property the property itself is just magical you know uh and there's nothing like it and so you're, uh, you're and, sort of on the on the shore of the lake but also of lake michigan but also sort of wedged between a smaller lake yeah yeah crystal right. lake yeah we are we're there's a, a isthmus of land between crystal lake which is at a little higher elevation than Lake Michigan, which is uh, you know to the to the west of us. We're on this little strip of land. Uh, there are uh, you know some natural dunes in the area. Um, when the property was developed, we're not right on the ocean like you know like the Pacific uh, famous Pacific courses or even like Whistling Straits or anything. Uh, there there are some homes and. Stuff between us and like we do have lake views, uh, but we are impacted by the by uh, the winds and the uh, and the um, prevailing weather in that area. Uh, it, it's a beautiful setting. It's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and from what I've read, you've been able to, or, or the golf course has been able to sort of escape um, knuckleheaded alterations and and things like that over the years so what you have now is pretty true to the uh original is it not it is um it's very true to the original very there have been very few changes to the golf course uh, and that's been intentional to keep it pure uh the mckenzie society of golf courses recognize it as one of the truest, you know, unchanged golf courses um, of the McKenzie designs. You know, we, we've added a T here or there. Uh, we've we've uh, employed the services of uh, Tom Doak or Mike DeVries, who are very familiar with the property, also very minimalist in their approach uh, to, to the property um, to make sure that these little tweaks fit in uh, recently we we did we had a very severe green the 11th green which is infamous uh, in golf and uh, it, it was just too severe and um, it had some other uh, agronomic issues and and that green was rebuilt um, some of the other greens we have used aerial photography and have expanded the size of the green expanded the green surface or collars, but it's restoration work. It's not, you know, it's not fixing, except for the 11th green, which needed some fixing. Everything else has been to try to 
keep it uh, true to its uh, original design. So I that's been fun. I think I just coined a new term, knuckleheaded alterations. <laughs> hey, we've uh, all seen them, right? Yes, we've all seen them. They are everywhere. Um, now, that 11th grain, was it the one that you said that was too severe? Yes. Did the, did the um, improvements in uh, maintenance over the years make that too fast? I mean, is that what pushed it? Or, or did faster speeds make that even more uh, unsuitable or unplayable? Yeah, I, I think I think both. Um, you know, it's always been severe. Um, and you know, and you, there are severe golf holes out out there in the golf world, and this one was was tough. And I think when some maintenance practices changed, it pushed it over the line. Um, you know, who knows? Uh, the impact of sand top dressing may have subtly changed. You know, the grades enough that also pushed right. it over, or maybe it got so. Maybe, and, and one of the things that that we did when we uh, restored, quote unquote, restored this green was to give it a little more space because uh, if it's if it's small and severe, you know, there's no there's no safe haven. But if it's a little larger, maybe there's a few more cupping areas that are safe and it, it's easier to get back on the green without it rolling off the green. The, the green sloped severely from, from uh, back to front, and it was a three-tiered green. And if you're on the back green trying to stop a ball on the middle, the green was sometimes impossible. So, yeah. you know, had had those issues of that went into the subjective uh, unfair. Well-received well improvement, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nothing... Nothing escapes controversy. Change, change is a bitch, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. My last question for you. And I think I see over your shoulder there what the answer is. What do you do for fun? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. These fly rods uh, are the latest uh, adventure. I've got into a good friend of mine uh, introduced me to, to, uh, spring, winter, and fall steelhead fishing on our rivers up here. And uh, that's been a blast. And, uh, but, uh, but you know, I, I live in this beautiful area. I like to, I like to go for rides on my bicycle. I like to hike on Lake Michigan. Um, and, and in the, we're, we're not far from Sleeping Bear uh, National Lakeshore. Uh, there's a lot to do here. It, it's quiet, but uh, being outdoors is great. I don't, I don't go uh, south unless I have to. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> We're kindred spirits in that regard. And, I, you know, uh, it, it's just it's just a pleasure and a blessing to live in uh, northern Michigan. Nice. I like art, too. This is a local artist here behind me. So. Nice. I like reading. I'm going to try to write more now that I hopefully will have some more fun. Very good. Okay, let's uh, slam the lid on this session of All Stars of Turf presented by Foley and Air2G2. Mike, congratulations on a great career and all the best. 
what lies ahead of you. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, again, it's been a pleasure. It always is a pleasure talking with you. Thanks. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye.